G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Srivasa Ramanujan. Uh, you might have heard this bloke's name, Ramanujan, Srivasa Ramanujan, from the, uh, the recent film about him, The Man Who Knew Infinity. Uh, did you see that film, I wonder? Um, great little film. Ramanujan, he was, uh, so it's about a real man, uh, he was one of the greatest mathematicians, there he is, of the 20th century, of last century. Um, and as the movie tells it, his, his life, is, it's a story of two loves, actually, not just one. I mean, he loved maths on the one hand, loved it, like lived it, breathed it, he, um, you know, he thought in patterns, he intuited numbers, he was just a genius uh, with maths. Uh, Here's a little excerpt that paints the picture. By age 11, Ramanujan had exhausted the mathematical knowledge of two college students who were lodgers at his home. This guy, to keep in mind, Ramanujan, he grew up in India, in very poor environment. I mean, he went to school, but he certainly wasn't educated in kind of the normal uh, Western education of the time. And he was uh, born in the late 1800s, and so, um, uh, you know, where India and its relationship with the West was very different indeed. Anyway, so by 11, he'd exhausted the maths knowledge of these college students who happened to be lodging at his home. He was later lent a maths textbook on advanced trigonometry, He mastered this by the age of 13, while discovering sophisticated theorems on his own. By 14, he was receiving merit certificates and academic awards that continued throughout his school career, and he assisted the school in the logistical challenge of uh, assigning its 1,200 students, each with differing needs, to its 35-odd teachers. Uh, He completed mathematical exams in half the allotted time. And on it goes. You get the picture? Ramanujan loved maths, loved it, lived it, breathed it, could do it, was a prodigy. But his other love, at least as the film tells it, and I hope it was telling the truth at this point, was his wife, Janaki. Uh, Ramanujan adored her. She was the sunshine of his life. She was the bright, shining light. She was his support. She was his strength, his encourager, his haven when the clouds rolled in, um, in life. So as Ramanujan set sail to go to the other side of the world alone, without her, to go to Cambridge to hopefully research and then publish and write and make enough money to then bring her out to be with him and hopefully his mum as well who loved her only son... Well, it was a real test, not so much of um, love itself, not at first, they knew they loved one another, but of surviving when you can no longer find any evidence of love. Survival when life clouds love from view for Ramanujan. Uh, What made it worse for Ramanujan, and and here I suspect the film took a bit of licence, but, you know, we'll work with what it says, what it tells us, Uh, films are supposed to do that. Three factors made it worse and more difficult um, and made those clouds beastly thick and dark. Okay, so firstly, Britain was awful for Ramanujan. I mean, it wasn't the poverty of Madras, but in in the main, the Brits were insensitive to the point of even being racist back in those days. Uh, plus they were oppressively elitist because, remember, he was in Cambridge at university. So think about it, an, an uneducated, largely, vegetarian, 
he wouldn't eat cows, Indian, in the old boys' club wartime beef-eating rarefied air of Cambridge. I mean, talk about bullied. The guy was suffering. Ramanujan, he was sidelined, he was patronised, what would he know? He was worn down, even abused. Second, the war. Uh, so he set sail in 1914, I said, to go to Cambridge. The war basically ruled out international travel, so he made it across. But any chance of Janaki or his mother following in his footsteps were shot. Uh, even when he was lonely at his most biggest pit, even when he was near death, they thought he was going to die. He was on his own in this strange land. Ramanujan had the money, but Janaki couldn't come to England. And the clouds roll in on the sunshine of her love, you see. But worst of all, even though Ramanujan wrote to her through those two years, three years, four, became five years... Even though he posted, even though he sent letter upon letter upon letter to the anchor of his life, do you know what his mother was doing this whole time? She intercepted every letter, as well as Janaki's back to Ramanujan, intercepted them, and so they heard nothing, not a peep from one another for this whole time. The mail system was pretty primitive, at least at the Indian um, end of things, and uh, Janaki was living with Ramanujan's mum, so it wasn't very hard for her to intercept. Why did she do it? I don't know. Maybe, I mean, she was grieving the loss of her son, wasn't she? And so maybe she thought it would lure him back. If he heard nothing, maybe he'd come back. Uh, maybe, he was, maybe she was scared that she'd lose Janaki too. She loved Janaki as well, and she'd be left all alone. And so she'd hide them away. Janaki didn't even know that he wrote a single one. Ramanujan, so hopelessly alone there in Cambridge, he heard not a peep from the one that he loved. Perhaps she's forgotten me. Perhaps she's moved on. I mean, years, five years, it's a long time. Who could blame her? Folks, Malachi's message to God's people, Israel, nearly 500 years before Christ, it was a word from God for a people whose life experience had cast clouds between them and the sunshine of God's love. What once shone bright and clear had become obscured, had become dim, had become darkened and hazy, had become a thing at the fringes of memory, um, lost. Uh, there was a lost sense of nearness and warmth and reality. I'm looking forward to getting into Malachi over these weeks. Uh, there is the dark clouds, but there is also very much the sunshine. Can we pray as we come to Malachi, please? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, some among us here this morning, we do live under a cloud. Uh, for some of us, those clouds are brief and they are light. Uh, for others, it's been years of rolling and dark thunderclouds. Uh, Lord God in heaven, all of us in Christ look ahead to the bright shining sunlight of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory and in comparison to that day, these days seem pretty brief and pretty grim, not necessarily because they're bad or sad but because there is such bright and wondrous stuff ahead for us. God, would you please prepare our hearts to live here and now as we await for there and then through this prophecy to Malachi and to us. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So Malachi chapter 1, I wonder if you'd read along there with me please, Malachi chapter 1 and verse 1, we're actually just going to cover the first five verses um, of, the, of chapter 1 today, the first um, chunk, an oracle 
the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? To begin with, I'd just like to zero in on that question, their counter question, where they kind of come back at God as our way into the text today. What exactly are they getting at, do you think? How have you loved us? What exactly is the spirit, the tone? In what kind of tone of voice are they putting that question across? Uh, This question can be seen in two very different ways, um, says Anthony Pedersen. Um, an expert on Malachi, we'll hear a bit more from him. This question can be seen in two very different ways. Um, as an insolent question expressing doubt, uh, you might call that the um, cranky teenager version of the question, um, how have you loved us? How have you loved me? Um, you don't love me, you've never loved me. If you really loved me, you'd let me do this or go there or have that. Um, But jokes aside, the kind of resentful, insolent, where is God's love for us? Um, It could be that, or, says Pedersen, as a painful cry from the midst of suffering. It could be that, couldn't it? Not insolent, but as a painful cry from the midst of suffering, similar to Job or the laments of the Psalms. Whether the people are insolent or distressed, Yahweh, that is the Lord, responds with grace. I think it's important for us just briefly to brush up on some of the background. So, when was Malachi writing? What was he on about? We're told in in, uh, verse 1 there, an oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel um, through Malachi. Uh, That language there, to Israel, um, it's kind of telling to use that name actually because to call them Israel hints at God's plan to put His people back together. He doesn't call them Judah, um, uh, it, let's just quickly, the, the reality um, was pretty crummy for these guys. So, remember, um, how far do we want to go back? Let's go back to just a bit after 1000 BC uh, for the people of Israel. So, God's people, do you remember, they'd been busted in half, north and south, what was called Israel in the north and what became uh, known as Judah in the south. God's people were busted in half and then the northern kingdom were taken, they were pretty much, they were smashed by Assyria in the 700s BC. Um, The south, the southern kingdom, Judah, was then exiled in the 500s BC So, you've got the northern kingdom smashed, basically wiped out, the southern kingdom exiled off into Babylonia in the 500s BC. But what happened next is the immediate backdrop for Malachi here. What happened next is when Persia then went on to smash Babylon, Babylon were the ones holding them captive, Persia smashed Babylon in 539 BC and King Cyrus of Persia sent those Jewish exiles back into the land of Israel or into Judah more particularly and uh, Jerusalem. So, by Malachi's time, they've returned, they've begun rebuilding, but it's slim pickings. It's a pretty dreary existence, it's pretty crummy. Uh, They've got a functioning temple of sorts, we'll see that in coming weeks, Uh, they've got a land to call home, kind of, but Persia was the boss, they were back what was left of them, Uh, Now, does that make it easier for us to choose? Uh, This question can be seen in two very different ways, as an insolent question expressing doubt, so, you know, God, the destroyer of our dreams, and now all we have is this, 
and there's hardly any of us, how has God ever loved us? Or as a painful cry from the midst of suffering. God, you've brought us back, but we are smashed and this is nothing on what we had before. It could be either. Now, in a sense, I don't know and I wonder if it kind of matters because in both senses, God's love, do you see, has been lost. I can't see it anymore. The clouds have rolled in on the sunshine of God's love and I can no longer see. Lost in the pains of life. And perhaps their hearts have turned against God or perhaps their hearts are just broken but very much still with Him. Anyway, an oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? God, how have you loved us? Now, when you and I ask that question, we don't ask it lightly, do we? Sometimes we might ask it insolently, what have you ever done for me? Sometimes we might ask it in pain, God, remind me, I cannot see it anymore. But it is always a question that comes from the heart, isn't it? You don't ask that question lightly, how have you loved us? But then God, here through Malachi, gives this peculiar answer, this peculiar response. So let's look at that again, an oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi... I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved uh, Jacob, but Esau I've hated and I've turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Um, We'll keep reading here, but the important backstory here is in two parts. So who's Jacob? You just need to brush up on these names. Um, and I'm sorry if um, you're thoroughly familiar with it, but uh, let's, let's just make sure we're on the same page here. Um, number one, Jacob is Israel's ancestor, isn't he? Okay, Jacob is Israel's ancestor. So all of Israel, every Israelite, every Jew could trace their ancestry back to Jacob, um, son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. And what can we say about Jacob? Well, Jacob is the one who said, I have, I've loved him. Uh, God says, I've loved him. Number two, Esau, the twin brother, the twin brother, well, he was kind of re- rejected from the start, wasn't he? Uh, Jacob and Esau, back in that story, we might need to brush up on that. Although, to be fair, Esau's descendants, the Edomites, who we'll see in just a moment, um, they were awful, they were just horrid. Can you remember, as a country toward Israel, okay? So, but you ask, how have you loved us? Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says, yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. I've turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom, so this is the descendants of Esau, Edom may say, though we've been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says, they may build, but I will demolish they will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. I want to say that is an odd response. Uh, If you're looking for evidence of God's love for you and he points to the destruction of Esau and Edom, what is God saying here and why is he saying it? What's he saying and why is he saying it? Why is pretty simple, isn't it? Uh, Why? Because I want you to know that I love you. How have I I loved you? Well, this is how, because right from the start, I chose you. 
I chose you before you were born, before your parents were born, before your great-grandparents, great-grandparents were born. Right back with Jacob, I promised him then, and I still mean it now, I love you, God is saying to Israel. Are you a descendant of Jacob? Then I love you, God is saying. But what exactly is this business? I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. We know why he's saying it, but what is he saying? Because gosh, that sounds harsh, doesn't it? I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. It sounds almost improper coming off the lips of God, especially when you've got the background, because God chose Jacob when, and God, in a sense, preferentially at least, picked Jacob when, or at least when did we find out about God choosing um, Jacob? I suppose God may have done it from eternity past, in fact, I'm sure He did. Um, I can't give you the exact figures, but round numbers... God chose Jacob, or at least we found out about it, sometime between when Jacob was negative nine months old and his birth. (laughs) Do you remember it there? uh, Let's just uh, quickly brush up on that. They weren't even born. So Genesis chapter 25, flick across there with me if you've uh, got your Bible on your lap, Genesis chapter 25, and we'll pick it up from verse 21. We'll just read a few verses here, but I want us to really grasp uh, the, the backstory here, Genesis 25, 21, so you've got Isaac, that's uh, the father in this case, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his, Isaac's prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, verse 23, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. There's already this little structure. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first came out, was red, and his whole body was a hairy garment. So they named him Esau, the older one. He came out first. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. Even from before they were born, the older will serve the younger. Folks, Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated... Here somehow we have to piece together God's sovereign control and plan in the world, on the one hand, with very real human responsibility and evil, um, on the other hand. I, think, I do think it's telling that in the Genesis account we have the older will serve the younger, but we have to wait centuries for that to do, till the time of Malachi before that distills into this language of hatred for Esau. There's not hate language back in Genesis. And no, even though Esau himself, do you remember his character? He sold God's blessing. He plotted to kill his brother, his own brother, Jacob. And even though his descendants, the Edomites, were happy to try and wipe Israel off the map more than once, their own cousins, so to speak, it waits this long for it to settle into this language Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. 
And the Edomites could sure see it now, we have been crushed, verse 4, God's opposition to them. And they were, historically. They may build, but I will demolish, says God. And that's exactly what He did. Edom won't ever have a proper country name anymore, will it? They will be called the wicked land, halfway through verse verse 4 there. A people always under the wrath of the Lord. And that's what happened. Edom was overrun. Uh, Its survivors were either scattered or killed or just became part of the communities of their conquerors over time. You will see it with your own eyes, says the Lord, verse 5. Great and say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. Now, how does that remind Israel of God's love for them? I think it says this, you think it's a small thing that you've returned to your land under Persian rule, you think it's a small thing that you've rebuilt the temple and you now have a place, you think it's a sign that I don't love you, that you're here and that you have a temple, you think you're abandoned and you're alone and you're half a world away from God, no, no, I have loved you and I've loved you from the first and I will love you to the very end, that's what God's saying the sun can yet shine through. Now, fast forward would you, uh, with me, would you please, um, to the time of Jesus. So, in Jesus, of course, we're used to saying things like, He is, the, you know, God's love writ large. He is where we see the love of God for mankind and indeed, um, He is for all to see. In Jesus, of course, the Jewish hope and Messiah appeared, the hopes of all of Israel, though they ended up killing and condemning and, uh, and uh, ending his life on the cross, all according to the plan of God. Uh, but what's interesting is that when the New Testament takes up these verses from Malachi, these five verses or so, which verses does it run with? Do you remember? Come with me to Romans 9, it picks up chapter 1, verse 2, it picks up, uh, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Come with me to Romans 9, we'll have a look there. So Christian, here's what I want you to know this morning, those reassuring words to Malachi's Jewish hearers, I love you, I have chosen you, you think it's slim pickings at the moment, but this is evidence that I have loved you from the first and I will love you to the end, I have chosen you and my love will last... Christian, I want you to know those reassurances are yours. They belong to you now in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, would you come with me to Romans chapter 9, the bit that Joe read for us uh, before, and we're going to finish um, with a reading from here. Paul's basic point is this, God chooses the people that He wants to save. God picks you and He sticks with you, not because you're good not because you tried really hard, not because you're nice, not even because you're a Jew, not because you're a child of the right ancestor. God chose Jacob, but He didn't choose Esau. And that means He can choose anyone and He can choose you. Um, Specifically, it means that Jews shouldn't be surprised at uh, the peculiar types that God happens to choose for salvation. Come with me to Romans chapter 6 and verse... Uh, chapter 9, sorry, in verse 6, partway through there, for not all who are de- descended from Israel are Israel. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants, are they all Abraham's children? On the contrary, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise 
who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated, at the appointed time I'll return and Sarah will have a son, that was the generation before what we've just been looking at, not only that but Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac, yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I've loved but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It doesn't therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Brothers and sisters here this morning, you know, we read these stories of God's work among ancient Israel and the lineage, it's so important. Have you got the, the, your father Jacob and the father Isaac before that and the father Abraham before that and it feels so foreign sometimes, it feels so different. It must have been so great to be a Jew back then and to be able to go, well, at least I'm in the family line, I'm chosen by God, He's set His love upon me. But Paul is saying here, brothers and sisters, the sunshine of God's love depends not on man's desire or on effort, not even on which family you're from. How do I know God loves me? How do you know that God loves you? Because, O believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, because, O believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, He chose you. And because the Lord's love lasts. He chose you and the Lord's love lasts. Srivasa Ramanujan, um, his wife Janaki, eventually she found the letters. She found them locked away, she discovered them, uh, the ones that needed to be sent off, these little tokens of love were sent off along, uh, you know, the ones sent back and that she was able to read And the son came out again in her life. Now, Ramanujan, he died a very young man. He died at 32, but before he died, he made it back to India. He made it back to his haven, to the sunshine of his love. Uh, He made it back uh, to India, back into his wife's arms, to his friend. Now, folks, I know that for some of us, the clouds of life, um, they threaten to block out the sun of God's love for us altogether sometimes be it the storms of mental health or the clouds of financial worries as they come and go, but gosh, they seem dark at the time, or the very dark night of life's final journey. But I want us to hear Malachi's opening message to us loud and clear. God's love lasts. He spoke those words, and we're going to see this all the more, not to a neat and tidy, proper little people of Israel, He spoke those words to some scoundrels. They were scumbags in many respects back then. But they were his, as in they belonged to him. He chose them. He'd set his love on them and they'd always be his. We've got to remember, brothers and sisters, the sunshine is coming. The clouds are for but a little while. 
an oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord. Shall we pray together? Our Father in heaven, when we're faced with difficulty and challenge in this life, when we're faced with disappointments and things that bar the way, things taken from us when we're not expecting it, uh, when we're faced with real challenges and the clouds seem to roll in and your love is blocked from view, too often, Father, we look around for sunshine from other places as if the great anchor in our life is our friends or the great anchor in our life is our spouse, our loved one or the great anchor in our life is how people see us or how fit we are or how wealthy we are. Lord God, all of those things can be taken away and would you please teach us the lesson that your people needed to learn back in the time of Malachi? to lean on your electing love, that you love those you've chosen and that you'll love them to the end. Uh, Father, help us to lean on you and help us to help one another um, lean on your love, confident that it lasts to the very end. But as we began with, Father, thank you that we look ahead. We look ahead to a, a bright and wonderful future. Father, sustain us to that day whether we have just some little clouds, little white puffy clouds in our life at the moment or whether we're facing a very dark night ahead um, indeed. Uh, Father, we pray, would you sustain us with the hope of the life that we have in Christ? May we lean on you uh, and may we point one another onward to that light as well. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.